Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and it's a chilly WIP morning out there. But we got some good conversation to keep you warm and cozy here on 94 WIP. When we come back in just a bit, one from the archives. Good conversation, always timeless, here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit to WIP time. 602. And it's conversation. My name's Peter Solomon, alive here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. And I'm pleased to welcome here author James Hannibal, his new book, The Fourth Ruby. Good morning, James Hannibal. Okay. Good morning, James Hannibal. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm pleasure. And please call me Peter. You've got an interesting background. Here you are writing books for young people, but yet you're a former. Air Force pilot of a stealth bomber and predatory mission commander. That's that's an unusual thing. Well, you know, I started writing covert ops fiction, so I have a I have a series, uh, uh, the Nick Barron series with Penguin Random House that uh, that he uses my covert ops background. But uh, one of the things about that series is it has to go through security committees before those books can be published uh, to make sure that I don't say anything that I shouldn't. And uh, so I, I have enjoyed actually writing a children's series because I don't have to put children's literature through a security committee. I'm sure that's a relief. Uh, okay. <laughs> now, your new book, The Fourth Ruby, it's the second in a series, isn't it? That's correct. This is uh, part of the Section 13 series uh, with our hero Jack Buckles uh, and his sidekick Glenn Kincaid, who are really two parts of Sherlock Holmes, if you think of Jack as the observation and Gwen as the deductions. And these kids are solving a historical mystery in each story in order to stop a present-day calamity. So in the fourth, I'm sorry, in the Lost Property Office, which uh, started the series last year, they were uh, researching or going through the, the clues to solve the mystery of the Great Fire of London of 1666 in order to stop a mad clockmaker from uh, from recreating it. And this time, uh, they are uh, unfortunately blamed for the theft of the crown jewels. And so while they're on the run through secret societies in London, uh, through an underground thieves guild village, and, and maybe facing a little bit of uh, trouble from the Ministry of Dragons, uh, they also have to catch the thief and trace the origins of three very real and very famous cursed jewels uh, in order to stop the bad guy from uh, reuniting them and resurrecting an ancient evil. Sounds a little bit. In fact, haven't you been compared to J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter? Uh, you know, I, I have the, the story um, uh, because it's uh, it's been picked up for film by Columbia Pictures. It's been optioned. Uh, and then I think Gizmodo Magazine said this may be the next Harry Potter. That's got to be exciting to hear that. Uh, it, it is, uh, and, and it's challenging. Uh, that's, that's, those are big shoes to fill. Uh, and so uh, I, yeah, I'm doing my best just to write good, enjoyable stories that kids will want to read. Why is it important to you that kids read? Uh, you know, children's literature and, and, and uh, kids reading is, is super important to me. Today you see a lot of um, other distractions. You know, kids always have their eyes on a screen uh, rather than a page. And, and not often with, with a Kindle or an e-reader, usually video games or the DS or, or something like that. And, and so I, I don't want uh, kids to lose the joy 
of reading. Um, the boys in particular tend to, to gravitate away from it. And so uh, I work hard on these stories to make them something that the kids will, will be able to sink their teeth into, sink their brains into, um, and take a little break from, from the screens and, and use the, uh, the imagination that, uh, that God gave them uh, to expand their world. Yep. Yeah, although it sounds like the lost property office in the fourth ruby could easily be a video game. <laughs> yeah, Sony has those rights. So if uh, if uh, somebody wants the video game rights to the lost property office, uh, contact Sony Pictures. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, but you're doing more than just writing for children, aren't you? You encourage children to read. Um, I, I do. I you know I, I I don't just encourage them to read stories. I, I encourage them to write stories of their own. And I've spoken to six thousand children this year. In the next about three weeks, I'll probably speak to two thousand to twenty five hundred more um, about creating stories. And we call it from inkling to ink, getting the idea out of your head and onto the page. And so we we do workshops about forty five minutes with school kids from from elementary all the way to high school. Uh, and uh, together we take a single idea. We start with one building block, and we use that building block to create more building blocks. And then we put them into the story points that are sort of ingrained in all of us, the, the pieces that are in every story mankind has written. So, you know, if we understand where those story beats lie, and we can put our building blocks there, then in the space of 45 minutes, the kids and I usually put together a really cool story. You suggest, though, that all stories have something in common. Um, oh, yes, every you know you know we are we all have um, the same story points ingrained in us. And there was a, a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, uh, which is actually a really more of a psychology book written by a guy who was not a psychologist. He was a mythologist, and he he put together um, I think that was Joseph Campbell, and he he put together the common points uh, in mythology from all over the world, and then uh, that was expanded upon with the writer's journey or the hero's journey. And, and these are points that if no matter who writes them um, and, and what their uh, training is, when you put these stories onto the page, you will find these common pieces in every story. The hero is, is sort of isolated at the beginning. He is, is pushed out of a comfort zone into a new world. He faces an ordeal uh, from which he learns, or he or she, uh, from which they learn and then uh, are able to survive that ordeal in one form or another and apply what they've learned uh, to conquer the antagonist for victory. And, and you know, you'll find that in just about every story. I would imagine, though, there's some pitfalls writing for young people. I know when you write for adults, got to have a car chase, got to have a little violence, and maybe a little sex. How about for kids? Well, you know what? Um, and one of the things about my books is, is uh, uh, I sat in um, a, uh, a big lecture with a very, very famous author uh, while I was holding my, my, my manuscript uh, in my hands for my first covert ops novel that I was about to pitch to an agent and was told point blank from this very famous author, you must have sex and you must have uh, this much foul language uh, in your thriller if you want it to sell. And I'm holding my manuscript that has no foul language, no sex in it. It has, uh, has action, but not gore. It has romance, but not sex. And, uh, and I was very discouraged. But here I am 
with uh, with with three novels in my covert ops trilogy, uh, and uh, so I, I I didn't think that that applied or, or I you know I did try to write uh, so my own stories that didn't include that stuff and and found uh, some success in the thriller industry, um, and so for me it wasn't that hard to, to go over to children's literature because I already wasn't putting that stuff in, but there is a challenge in writing in a child's voice and, and understanding that. And almost like training for that, I ran a middle grade boys book club for two years, and the boys and I went through some classics and some new literature, uh, and we we tried to connect with that through activities that were that were part of those stories. Uh, like with my side of the mountain, we went out in the backyard and we recreated all the survival experiments that the boy did. Um, but that was serious training for me in in developing a boy's voice for a middle grade novel. You really tell us that kids want to do this, don't they? Um, oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think I think kids want to want to create stories, and they want they want to um, uh, they they want to um, use their imaginations and get get lost in an adventure for a while. Hmm. Which is easier, children's writing or adult writing? Oh, that is a tough question because they both have their challenges. Uh, and they, you know what? They both have their research, especially when you're doing sort of historical fantasy uh, for kids. Uh, the, the children's writing is, is challenging because, you're again, you're writing in the child's voice and you're trying to be, be concise uh, enough so that the, the kids remain uh, engaged. The adult writing um, is also challenging just because of some of the level of in-depth research, especially when you're writing thrillers and you have a background like mine, there's a serious level of expectation for accuracy. Uh, and yet you also want to be right on the cutting edge or just beyond the cutting edge with technology and those kind of military covert ops thrillers. And so uh, that, that can be a serious challenge. What's on kids' minds then when you work with them in a workshop? Where do you get the building blocks from? What are they thinking about? You know what? That's a really good question. The, I just did a school visit in um, New York, and uh, I, I, I always give the kids an option of, of who will be the villain and who will be the hero. And they threw me a loop, and I usually, uh, depending on the age group, I, use, I, I ask them to pick an animal um, as they begin to brainstorm these building blocks. And the kids in Sag Harbor chose a stink bug. And I thought, well, that's just odd. Uh, uh, it, it, it threw me for a loop, and so we're going we're gonna to move forward with it. I always take the kids' ideas and continue forward. And what I found out was that that was important to them right then because Sag Harbor was having, at that time, uh, a a, a big problem with stink bugs, and, and it was it was actually a, a a real challenge in those children's lives facing you know the the problems that stink bugs bring, and they made that the villain. And wherever I go, I discover that when the kids begin to put things into their stories, there's always another little story behind that. And why, why are they making these suggestions? Because that's what's on their mind at the time. And that's some of the reason why we write. We get these things out of our heads um, that, are, that are part of our own, you know, maybe catharsis or part of our own just working out what's going on in our lives. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning is James R. Hannibal.
creator of a series of books, the newest, The Fourth Ruby, a book for young people. James, is it different when you work with young ladies than young men? Girls and, and boys have uh, have different motivations. Um, when you're uh, working with them on, on creating stories, uh, they both have individual, they both have unique ideas, but every child has unique ideas. Um, I think girls tend to be uh, in writing at that age easier to engage with. Um, boys, uh, I have to maybe work a little harder, not with all boys, but with, with many of them. Why do you do it? I mean, you can't be making money doing this stuff. <laughs> no, I actually don't. Uh, lately, uh, have not been have not charged. I don't feel like I'm um, uh, well known enough to you know d- demand a large honorarium from a school when I go to to visit. Um, but again, this is all about helping children create stories and helping them uh, engage with reading stories, and that's that's the end goal. That's the most important thing here. Now, besides your unique background as a pilot, you have something else going on, something called synesthesia? That's correct. So synesthesia is a merger of the senses, and uh, synesthetes have many levels. The most common is chromesthesia, in which sounds have color. Um, But for me, I have uh, four of my senses intersect. So for me, sounds have color and texture. I I can feel sounds. Um, I see and hear uh, flashes of light and movement, and I feel um, and see smells. So they did a re- recently they did a study. There was a terrible theory for a while that synesthetes uh, failed to develop walls between our senses. It was a, it was a horrible theory with very little grounding. Uh, but they did a study last December, and what they actually determined was synesthetes have developed bridges between our hemispheres that join these portions of our senses. So uh, we took this, when I was recreating a hyper-observant detective, because I wanted to write a, a Holmesian-type detective because I had discovered the, the impetus for the Lost Property Office on Baker Street next to 221B, Sherlock Holmes' address is the Lost Property Office. And so I'm recreating the Holmesian-type hyper-observant detective, um, and my wife suggested that I apply my own uh, synesthesia uh, because it has helped me catch bad guys in the past. And so that's how we decided to make Jack, although we never used the term in the book, he's a tracker in the book, because when I was a child, nobody told me I was a synesthete. I just thought that I had more trouble dealing with the world than everybody else, and I just had to work harder to focus. So that's how Jack uh, faces the world. And, but when he discovers how to use his senses, he can use them to, to help people. And, of course, we embellish the synesthesia a little bit in the book. When Jack touches stone or steel, he can feel the vibrations in uh, the minerals, in their molecules, and see the light and sound captured there and see back into history to help uh, him and Gwen solve the mystery. Now, going back into history, you obviously had to do some research. Uh, yes, uh, and the research is, is a fun part. You can get lost in the research when you're a writer. It's actually a very dangerous path uh, because you can forget to write the book. Um, history can be so fun. And in researching the Great Fire of London, you know, I discovered that the, the, the party line here on, on the, the Great Fire is that it started in a bakery, and uh, the poor baker... Thomas Fariner, uh, died of shame literally a couple years after the incident. Uh, but what we 
begin to discover when we research the story is that uh, this there was most, most likely much more to it, possibly some French arson, uh, but the King Charles, this is King Charles II from the Restoration Monarchy, the Restored Monarchy, uh, could not afford a scandal that involves the French because his brother, the Duke of York, was a known French sympathizer, and so uh, we, you know, the the story about the, the fire starting the bakery is essentially a, a 350 year old cover up, and so that becomes very very fun when you begin to to try to solve the mystery on your own. And with the fourth ruby, it was the same. I was digging into the Black Prince's ruby, named after Edward the Black Prince, uh, who uh, was named as such because he carried a black shield into battle, we think, uh, or else wore black armor, but. Uh, uh, the, his ruby, which is in the crown of England, uh, was the original idea for the story. And then I discovered that it has uh, twins. It has a, has a, it has it's part of triplets actually that exist in other crown jewels all over the world. And all of these jewels are considered cursed, and they they leave trails of blood and betrayal through 800 years of history and half a dozen empires, all back to the same origin. And this may be, the fourth ruby being fiction, may still be the first book that actually links and traces these three jewels back to their common and, and rather uh, exciting origin, but I can't say what it is because that would be a spoiler. Absolutely. Now, one more question about your synesthesia. Does it help or hurt your writing? Uh, synesthesia helps my writing. I think synesthesia has helped me throughout life, and that, fortunately, I had a I had a tough father who um, essentially made me deal just deal with it, deal with everything. And, and I think, in that regard, it, it made me stronger and helped me apply my synesthesia in my military work to help uh, uh, catch some bad guys and do some other things. And so. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very comfortable with my synesthesia. I'm comfortable with shifting my focus. It's like, it's like looking at the world through four screens at the same time. Uh, and, I, and I'm very good after so many years of being just, you know, having to deal with it, of shifting from one screen to the next. And I think that really contributes to my writing. And one of the publications that wrote about it said that um, it was dynamic and sensory. And, and I think the reason that, that the writing is so sensory is because, you know, oftentimes writing ends up being a little bit flat with just describing what the character sees or hears, and we forget about everything else. And so uh, uh, I think one of the reasons that my writing is that sensory is because of my synesthesia. I sort of experience all these things all at once. What's your goal with the books? What do you want a young person to think when he's done? You know what? Uh, I want, and, and I, I failed to talk about this so far, but these stories at their very heart are stories about family. The story of the lost property office is a boy searching for his father, and the story in the fourth ruby is a boy who is actually dealing with a father who is now in a coma, and how do you go on living uh, while you're caring for someone who is, is in that, that tragic state? And so uh, what I want kids to get out is a good story. I want them to get out uh, out of these books um, an adventure, but I also want them to see the, the love of family. I think, I think family love has been lost in a lot of stories because as authors uh, isolate the hero, which is sort of a requirement, one of the easiest ways to isolate the hero is to have mean parents or mean step-parents or dead parents. And uh, in, in this case, I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted, I wanted the, um, 
the, the children to experience love. So Jack is surrounded by his mother and his sister and his good friend Gwen, uh, and I, I want kids to feel that, that familiar love as, as he deals with these hard pieces of his life. You have a website? www.thelostpropertyoffice.com, and that has all the information for the series. And with the holidays approaching, anything by Jack Hannibal, whether it's James Hannibal, I'm sorry, anything by James Hannibal, whether it's an adult thriller or a book for kids, consider it for a present. Thank you, James (laughs) Hannibal. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. And it's been Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Before we go, I want to tell you something that's come to me from my good friends at the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion up in Germantown. On Sunday, November 12th, at 1.30 in the afternoon, they're having a 19th century food tasting and demonstration. Until the Victorian times, chocolate was primarily used in drinks. But Victorians took it much further. So this is for all chocoholics out there. You can go and taste creations from 19th century cookbooks with a today's twist. Food expert Becky Diamond will be baking delicious things like chocolate cake and a whole lot more. And you can go and tell them you heard it here on 94WIP Conversation with Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday. If you can't, nothing left to say, but see you soon.